0: And the scarcity mindset is bred into us. We're formed to believe there's not enough to go around. And the Christian gospel says, it's not just that you don't have to hold on to it tightly. You don't even earn it in the first place. It's just given to you full stop. Uh, And if we have an economic uh, mindset that flows from the gospel, flows out of the communion table, then that's an economic mindset of abundance instead of scarcity.
1: Welcome to Conversations, a Fund in Northern Ireland podcast, designed to connect you, the listener, with the voices of Fund's wisdom and experience from around the world, connecting it always to a local church and our local experience here in Northern Ireland. We really appreciate every single one of our listeners. Uh, and as we enter into Advent, we really trust that this next episode is one which will bless encourage, inspire, challenge, uh, whatever it is that you need. We trust this episode will be worth your time. a real privilege to have uh, three wonderful uh, new faces on our podcast this morning. First of all, let me introduce you to my new co-host Lauren, who's my colleague in the Tear Fund Northern Ireland team. Lauren, give us a bit of a one minute summary of who you are and what you do with Tear Fund.
2: Yes, so um, I'm Lauren Agnew and I joined the team about a year ago and my role in the Northern Ireland team is on the advocacy and campaigns manager so really my job is all about getting people to act in response to injustice we talk about giving acting and praying in response to poverty my part is all about the acting part we campaign on lots of different issues around sort of the systemic causes of injustice at the moment we're campaigning around climate we will often kind of switch back and forth between climate and campaigning on waste and circular economy so I'm just really passionate about people and um, yeah taking what it really means to follow Jesus in every single aspect of their lives So
1: good to have a co-host, finally. I was a little bit bored um, recording them on my own. So thanks so much, Lauren, for agreeing to be part of it. Uh, I want to introduce my two guests. So first of all, Philip Powell. Philip serves as the Theology and Network Engagement Manager with Tearfund. Wonderful title. And he's also the co-director of the Global Justice Conference, which you can Google. Philip grew up in India and has decades of experience in a range of theological and practical rules, and he tells me that he's particularly passionate about being a bridge builder between theological streams, between cultural differences, and I understand that his other big passion is cricket. So, Philip, you're very, very welcome. Uh, Tell me this, if England are playing India in the cricket,
3: who is it that you're cheering on? Thanks for that question, Chris. (laughs) The answer is absolutely, I will only support India. Right. (laughs) But if England was playing in the final against Pakistan, of course, I'll support England.
2: Okay.
1: (laughs) well, as as uh, Northern Irish, Irish, British people, we uh, understand some of the complexities of cheering on your your friend's enemy is your enemy. Is that what the statement is? Uh, Wonderful, Philip. You're so welcome. And then my other guest this morning is Kevin Hargaden. Kevin is a social theologian and is the director at the Jesuit Centre for Faith and Justice, which is based in Dublin. He holds, I understand, lots of degrees, including computer science, sociology, and theology, and completed his PhD in theological ethics from the University of Aberdeen. He's the author of a number of books, including what I'm going to call a masterpiece, which we'll come to later, a book called The Theological Ethics in a Neoliberal Age, which you can find online, and a more recent publication just coming out this month called Parish as Oasis which explores the practical role of the local church in responding to the climate crisis. And Kevin's also an elder in his local Presbyterian church. Kevin, most of our listeners are based in Northern Ireland and often we can miss stuff that goes on just south of the border, even though it's only a few miles away. Tell us something interesting uh, that's going on in the south that we might have missed.
0: Um, Well, we're we're very excited uh, because December 7th, uh, we're going to have a visit to Dublin from uh, one of the, Great theologians of our age, uh, and particularly a, a theologian who focuses on questions of global development, environmental sustainability, and, and the problem of greed. And his name is William Kavanaugh, and he's uh, from Chicago, and he's coming to speak in uh, the Newman Centre, which is on Stephens Green in uh, Dublin City Centre. So it's an easy road trip down Um and uh, it's going to be a magnificent event. I think he's going to talk about the prevailing myth that we have in our society about how secularity is a, a liberation event and how we're, we're progressing beyond religion. And he's going to uh, kind of provoke us to question whether or not that, that myth is true, uh, which I think is very relevant in all of our contexts in the UK and in Ireland. Um, and it's going to be live streamed as well. So you don't even have to spend your carbon uh, allowance on driving down to Dublin. You can just uh, em- enjoy it from your living room.
1: Fantastic. There you go. So, gents, uh and Lauren, let, let me tell you how I imagine this conversation going, because I've really been buzzing about this since we got it in the diary. I, I would love it just to be this organic uh, back and forth between uh, between you both, <laughs> uh, Kevin and Phil. Uh, because you've such experience uh, in the theological and practical space around poverty uh, and uh, the work of an organization like Tear Fund, um, which is really exciting. So I'm so, so glad to have that. Um, Kevin, you've written and spoken loads about, I guess, the nature of our Western capitalist society um, and the challenge for us as Christians in living in that space. And Philip, you've maybe a bit more of a global perspective around systems of poverty uh, and the work of a development agency like Tearfund. Um, but I hope this conversation just goes where it goes and we'll be blessed and the listeners will be blessed, I hope, as well. Kevin, let's start with you. Just in case people haven't read that book I mentioned, let's assume that they haven't. <laughs> yeah, that's Give a so, solid assumption. That's yeah. a solid assumption, great. Give I I just, can uh, interrupt for the record to say that Chris talked
2: about this book constantly? Absolutely, constantly recommending
1: it to everyone on their granny. I did. People were, people were tired of seeing me coming. Think, yeah, yeah. By the time I finished quoting it, uh, give us just a three minute intro. What did you write? Why did you write it?
0: Uh, why did I write it? I'll answer that first. I was uh, part of a church plant in Dublin, a Presbyterian church, and lots of people um, rediscovered Christianity or discovered Christianity for the first time in that context. And noticing that Jesus is preoccupied with wealth and then they would look at this was true to Celtic Tiger they would look at their salaries which were growing every year and many of them were working for the large tech giants and getting serious bonuses and stock options and they said surely there's a discrepancy between the way we're living and our newfound commitment to Jesus and I said you know you're right and I went away to try to figure out how to preach about this and I found that the the best piece of advice that we have is from John Wesley Uh, who said in early capitalist England that you should uh, earn as much as you can, save as much as you can, and give as much as you can. That's excellent advice if you're an agrarian worker moving into the city uh, in the early 1800s, but it's dreadful advice if you're a tech worker in the Western world in the 21st century, because it only intensifies the problem of wealth. Because if you earn as much as you can, save as much as you can and give as much as you can when you're phenomenally wealthy, in a hugely wealthy context, it just grows to wealth. Now that's that's fine advice in terms of community development, but it does bypass this theological problem we have where Jesus is never saying anything good about money. So I went away to try to figure out how could I preach about money in a way that recognized that it it is a good thing that we're wealthy and uh, we don't want to have some kind of stupid blanket opprobrium on wealth generation. Wealth generation is a good thing. And yet at the same time, how do we deal with the utter excess that marks our social context? Um, So that's why I I went away to research this. Um, What I found was that uh, everything is more complicated once you look more closely to it. I concluded that uh, the parables of Jesus are the place we should go if we want to think seriously about wealth. The parables of Jesus are particularly useful on the topic of wealth because they come at the question from an angle. They tease us into active thought in their ambiguity and their provocation. And uh, preaching the whole scriptural account of how wealth is, is handled is something that uh, ministers and pastors should do. Um And we should trust the Holy Spirit will use the preached word uh, to convict individuals and communities in in ways that we can't yet anticipate. I don't propose a program for how to deal with the problem of wealth beyond uh, faithful attention to the scriptures and trusting that the Spirit is at work. Um, and and you know it's a whole fully developed argument uh Chris might be one of only seven people in the world uh who's read the whole thing but uh but the, my basically it ends up being at uh, a plea or a manifesto for preachers to take seriously uh the magnificent texts that we have and to preach them in their fullness as opposed to just bypassing the parts that could be tricky or provoke a reaction the reaction is exactly what we want to provoke
1: wonderful and i think the thing that struck me about reading it was how little i had heard preaching on wealth outside of the context of giving to to global needs or to local needs so the the conversation was always around generosity in response to something less so about the the step before that around the the issue of wealth and theological basis for for giving or for keeping uh, which was what's I find so challenging and interesting, but uh, wonderful, Kevin, we'll get into more of that later. Philip, regular listeners will know a little bit about some of the theology that underpins Tierfund's work, or response, Um, but maybe just give us a a, a three-minute rundown, Um, how does Fund see the world, where is God in it, what does poverty mean, how is it caused?
3: Thank you, Chris. It's great to be on the programme, and great to be on the programme with Kevin and Lauren I've just been reflecting on what I just heard Kevin say, and there's so many things I want to say in the back of that. But can I just add my voice uh, to encourage Christians, particularly young Christian leaders who are passionate about changing the world, to read Kevin's book, uh, particularly Kevin's commitment to being rooted in scripture and studying the word, the actual words of Jesus is hugely important for us who want to see change in our world. Coming to TFN's, um uh, commitment to theology, what we do, let me... Uh, um, tell you a few things. As most of your listeners would probably already know, Tearfund's mission is to follow Jesus where the need is greatest, responding to crisis and partnering with local churches and organizations to help people lift themselves out of poverty. Our vision is to see people freed from poverty, uh, living that transformed life and fulfilling the potential that God has for each individual. So that's sort of our mission, our vision. And, and so the question is, why does theology matter for Tearfund? And this is the way I would articulate it. I'm sure other people would articulate this differently. Um, Theological assumptions, whether we realize it or not, um, underpins our worldview. It informs our habits, our beliefs, our actions. And therefore, I think as Fund, we believe that, um, you know, called to be um, servant influences, we have an opportunity to invite the church into a more holistic understanding of God's mission and God's heart for responding to poverty, responding to injustice, And theology uh, and and the shifts in theology that we can see in in Christians, in churches, then contributes to that mobilization of the church and and God's people to to, to respond to poverty. I think there's another aspect to this that is also significant, which is that uh, we want to inspire the UK church and Christians in the global north more generally to listen and learn from voices, from the theologians, from the teachers in the majority world or what we call the global south. And I'm sure um, many of your listeners uh, of this podcast have had the opportunity to listen to uh, many of the colleagues we have in Tearfund working in other parts of the world. And I think that's, again, hugely important, especially in a world that is um, becoming globalized, becoming interconnected. We need to see our world from the perspective of people in other parts of the world. So to understand how I live my Christian life well, how I be a faithful disciple of Jesus here in Cambridge in Romsey where I live I need the perspectives and the wisdom that parts of the body of Christ carry in other parts of the world and the final thing I would say I think um to sort of sum up why theology is important I think theology has a unique power to to shake things up and for some people you know they go into what's sometimes called a crisis of faith which may not always be a bad thing but the second thing that theology can do I think is to shape and reshape people's uh, imagination but also their vision for how they want to live their life so that's my commitment to theology uh, and the work we do in Tearfund.
1: Wonderful thanks Todd uh, and that that commitment to listening to Global Voices was the the initial heart behind this podcast to connect ordinary Northern Irish people with some of our colleagues around the world who are such a blessing. Quite often I'm on a call and I pinch myself with the privilege of listening to people from maybe every continent in the world on a call. Uh, and it's a real privilege. You've both given us such a masterpiece of why theology is important, uh, which we'd expect nothing less from two theologians.
3: Can I just can I just say, uh, I would not want to call myself a theologian in the presence of given. I have not formally studied theology, but yesterday I was on a call with somebody who said, oh, Dorothy Day or C.S. Lewis or uh, John Stott didn't have a PhD in theology, so I always envy people who have had the resource and the time to do a PhD in theology, but I'm just a guy who has taught myself a little thing here and a little thing there. And I, my my passion is for how, as Christians, we can live well in the world and see some sort of change that will bring justice for the people who are suffering because of injustice in the world. I think that's my heart. And for me, theology plays a part in that vision and work.
0: Yeah. So Some other time, we should get together and have a conversation about how ultimately the Uh, alliance between theology and the modern university is destructive for the church and theology would be much richer if it didn't have all of this gatekeeping nonsense about having to have three letters after your name before you can be uh, considered an expert. Because as you say, the the advances that are occurring in theological work and in the church are not being advanced by professors (laughs) for the large part. The professors might want to, but the system itself uh, actually mitigates against uh, real Holy Spirit driven mission. So uh, I strongly, uh, if Philip's not a theologian, then I don't want to be a theologian. Um, <laughs> uh,
1: yeah. Right. Let me ask uh, about poverty. We know, obviously, that there's physical poverty uh, abounds in our world. At Tearfund, we also understand that there's an impoverishment which impacts not just the physical, but the emotional, the spirits, the social parts of our being, and that often they're linked in that extreme poverty, extreme physical poverty shatters social and emotional and spiritual well-being as well as the very real physical impact. And of course, I am no expert at all, but one thing that struck me when I traveled to Rwanda earlier this year was the the wealth of some of the communities. Now, not material wealth, uh, some of these communities had lifted themselves out of poverty really successfully uh, and had alleviated poverty right across their community. uh, Real success stories, But they're still poor in relative terms. And yet we experience a real richness of community, a real richness of welcome, a real wealth of joy, of of value, of faith, of all of these other things. Kevin, we here in, in the UK and Ireland are wealthy. And yet, as a generalization, we experience real impoverishment in some of these other ways, don't we? Relationship, faith, values. I want to ask you, is this... Is this imbalance, is that a result of wealth, do you think? Is there something uniquely cultural about the West going on there? What do you see it from your perspective?
0: Uh, if I can get a little bit technical here, I think the massive change in cultural values in the United Kingdom and Ireland over the last 20 years uh, can be attributed to lots of different factors. But the primary driver for them is, I think, what we call neoliberal capitalism which is not, strictly speaking, an economic idea. It's a political idea that has become the common sense in both of our jurisdictions. And what that means is that every question of uh, communal deliberation gets reduced down to a cost-benefit analysis and is understood as being improved by competition. And so we've seen, uh, you know, in the 1980s and 90s, a massive um, spate of privatization of public services, because we believe that this would lead to efficiency. We've seen objectively now, empirically, that's uh, not the case. And uh, following on from that, what we've seen is more and more people are thinking of themselves, in themselves, as entrepreneurs, that they have to maximize themselves, that they have to um, live their best life, that they have to be, it's more and more and more. Uh, That applies to us politically, it applies to us individually. And in that environment, you find that it is very barren to try to talk about these uh, treasures that can't have a monetary value associated to them. So the communal well-being that exists because of the weaving together of relationships of people who've been stationary in the same place for decades, uh, who get to know the locale and the geography and the history of a place. None of that can be put into a spreadsheet. And it's not that it becomes therefore uh worthless, but it becomes invisible to our public discourse and to our shared imagination. Um and so it's not we don't want to romanticize uh the wealth of the communities in Rwanda. Um I'd say most people in in the townships around uh Kigali is what's the capital of Rwanda again? Kigali, um, yeah. Kigali, yeah. Um I think that they'd, they'd probably like to have a couple of weeks even in Larn or <laughs> yes, down yes. or Tala. Um, but but there is something about the utilitarian nature of our society means that we're not able to really treasure these good things that are still there under the surface. And um, this, this communal wealth, um, it comes out in moments of tragedy. Uh, your Irish listeners will be familiar with the uh, awful events in Donegal uh, two months ago where a petrol station um, exploded. You know, one of these awful events that occur and the community spirit was still there um, to hold people together at a moment of profound crisis. But it's we're not alert to it on a day-to-day basis. Why? Because we think about everything in terms of the cost-benefit analysis. And if you listen to the radio, if you read the newspapers, if you attend in any way to political decision-making, you'll see that uh, everything that isn't monetary is classified as a kind of unreal thing. And everything that is real has to be determined in terms of cost. Um, I could say more, but I feel like that's fundamentally the problem. We we have a, a we've been we're held captive by this uh, empirically untrue idea that our society will get richer the more we grow the economy. When in fact, what we find is that uh, wealth is more than just um, a, a monetary concept.
2: That's fascinating, Kevin. It's like great to hear you give voice and words and terms and analysis to some of the things that we experience. I just wanted to pick up on what you said about communal wealth and where we do see those little bits of light crack through. Um, I was in Dunfanke just after creslock which for anyone who doesn't know is the village that Kevin was referring to. And all the way around the town, you just saw so many fundraisers, a placard in every window of all the things that the different businesses were doing to raise money, the way the community was coming together. And you're so right, it was an example of that communal wealth. Um, what do you think the role of the church can be in bringing those little sparks of light? Do you feel like the church has become complicit in that to the point that that's not as much possible as much anymore or are you still seeing those little fragments of light and communal wealth breakthrough
0: uh, i mean much more than fragments of light i feel um dublin the dublin culture is uh quite stridently secular um as re- the peak representation of that in ireland is the newspaper of record the irish times and after this creeslock tragedy and um, the irish times paused its decades-long uh, editorial assault on christianity to note in a series of pieces the absolutely central role that the clergy played in the aftermath of that crisis, um, who have, have no particular training in grief counseling or in the psychology of bereavement or in uh, petrochemical chemistry that caused the explosion. And yet they, uh, they had a skill set and a set of experiences that allowed them to be exactly what they were called to be, pastors, shepherds. And in that moment of crisis, the wealth of the church was there on display for even its harshest critics to see. So the church in Ireland, at least, and and in large parts of the United Kingdom as well, uh, is receding in number, but the strength is still there. Um, The the local church remains one of the most vibrant places of diverse community that exists in our society. And I think that's very important, the diversity of the church, the natural diversity of the church. um, uh, where where people come from different nations. Indians and Pakistanis can find that they're best friends uh, around the community table. And uh, Chris and I, uh, r- radically different backgrounds, and in previous generations would have been opponents to each other, find that we are, in fact, uh, brothers in Christ. So I, I don't just think it's a fragment of light. I think it's just the, the one, one of the primary sources of light that's left in terms of the community wealth of our society.
3: Amen. Yeah, can I just add my voice to... Uh why it is important to not get swept along with the kind of public discourse that seems to be both um, anti-Christian and also anti-church. And there are reasons why some of that discourse is so energized at the moment in our culture. But I think it's important to note and to to counter that more dominant narrative with what Kevin just said. And I just would like to add my voice. Leslie Newbegin. A missionary from the UK to India uh, said, "The local congregation, the local church, it is the embodied reality that the gospel is true." Um, and I'm sitting here at the church in Cambridge where he attended, and his writings have helped me again appreciate how much, you know, the, the verse in Corinthians, the foolish things of the earth. You know, why did God choose to take His redemptive purposes in history forward through ordinary people? I mean, that 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 is the mystery of uh, God being revealed in history. That you know, Pakistanis and Indians are reconciled into brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet, I think we need to not only embody this, sort of socially embody this reconciliation that we have in Christ, but there is a public dimension to our witness, which is to raise an alarm, to to raise questions, to challenge the dominant um, grammar of our culture uh, that Kevin was talking about. um, This idea that, if you cannot quantify it in term, in monetary terms, it doesn't really matter. Uh, there is, I think, a, a, a prophetic side to the church's life. And um, so adding to the pastoral side of providing care, just sitting there with your neighbor when they are weeping and are broken, there's a side to sort of question and challenge and oppose those in power who, instead of doing what is right, abuse that power. So I would add that. And I think um, there is something of God's wisdom that comes into display. Uh, to the powers and principalities, that the gospel is still good news for the world. And Philip,
1: you've grown up in India, but spent decades here in the UK. In terms of that, what we've discussed around the visible and invisible wealth, is is that a cultural thing here in the West? Is that viewed the same in other parts of the world? Or maybe with your eyes, maybe looking at things slightly differently than we would? Where do you see that playing out globally uh, and what's unique to us here in the UK? Yeah,
3: uh, let me add a few thoughts uh, to that question and I'd love to hear uh, Kevin respond. I think there is something deeply fundamental to our fallen human nature that capitalism or neoliberal capitalism taps into. There's something in us that wants to be self-centered, that wants to hold on to hoard more than we actually need. So the idea idea that... um, it's a global north problem, is only partly correct. You know, I've seen from 1991 when India liberalized, the extent to which neoliberal capitalist arrangements and the ideology has taken root in India, a culture that can pride itself on being spiritual and otherworldly and all of that. And yet you go to these malls in Delhi and Mumbai and Chennai and people are obsessing with things. The second thing to say is I think... um, We need to be very cautious in romanticizing uh, relational wealth or this sort of um, non-financial capital because people who experience poverty also experience powerlessness. And when you experience powerlessness, you're not able to exercise your God-given agency for you to be able to make the choices that bring to expression the gifts that God has given you um, when you're in communities where there's poverty. And so my experience living in the UK for the last two decades, is that we need to have God's heart for poverty in the world, in places like India or Rwanda, but also God's heart for the poor in places like Luton and Chatteris, where I've lived. You know, I've spent years of my life in Luton and it's unbelievable. Uh, For example, the Irish community that came to work in the the factories in, in Luton, who three, four generations sometimes have not had a male figure who has had full employment for their lifetime. And when you sit and chat with these boys who are often, you know, at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock in the morning, just, you know, not in school, throwing stones at people, and, and you chat with them, and you, re, and you see the brokenness, or in Chatris, where communities have historically worked in the um, agriculture sector, have now been left behind because, you know, cheap labor has come in from, you know, Eastern Europe. When you talk to these communities, you realize, actually, they have been left behind. So global, the victims of this sort of neoliberal globalization is not just out there, it's also in the UK. And I think we need more urban churches having a vision for not just going and planting an urban church somewhere in a rural area, but how does the gospel, how do you incarnate the gospel, the good news of the gospel, economically speaking, into these communities? No easy answers here, but I think the key is again, not to come with bureaucratic solutions and think you can fix the problem. There's, there's not that... The gospel doesn't work that way, the kingdom doesn't work that way. God's kingdom has to break into that place, into that moment in time. But when that happens, I believe, uh, like I said before, we bear witness to the gospel. Uh, And that's my heart, that there is not just a commitment to uh, serving the people in poverty in other parts of the world, but also here the church uh, remains true to being the church, uh, which is, uh, again, as Newbegin said, a foretaste, an instrument of God's kingdom in the world, a signpost. And, and, and I see that in places, but I think there is a real desire in my heart to envision the church to sort of embrace that call to go to the hard places in the UK.
0: I, I mean, I am I want to go to the hard places in the UK now. I think it's it's especially important. The thing that resonates with me most strongly there, Philip, is uh, we must resist the desire to uh, settle for a bureaucracy of do-gooding in lieu of the apocalyptic and of the kingdom of God. It's a very frustrating place, especially for, in my experience, church leaders. My overwhelming experience from the Theological Ethics in the Neoliberal Age book, when it's read by pastors, they're not, like Chris, delighted by it. They're frustrated by it. They almost want a refund. It's like, (laughs) this (laughs) sham of (laughs) a book said that it was going to help me. And at the end of it, he says, you just have to pray and preach. And I'm already praying and preach. What What nonsense is this? Tell me what to do. And... and ironically, this is this is a function of the neoliberal imagination. That every problem must be described with a solution. And if you don't have a solution, then you're part of the problem. In fact, <laughs> for Christians, to be able to bear witness to the disorder of our world and to accurately and precisely describe it, that's a real big achievement. And now we can pray much more constructively about it if we're able to describe the problem. And we wait on the Lord to show us the solution. Uh, so the The desire that we have is to look to experts like the Tier Fund to produce the programs that we can fund. That's very easy. You know, we we, we write a check and then the problem will go away. But what you're describing, calling people instead to build relationships, to embed yourself in these communities of disadvantage, uh, to form friendships, to meet over the dinner table, to to do this uh, hard work of relational development, alongside the social development, that's that's the distinctive that Christian mission should bring. Um, And I I also feel very strongly that it's important that we don't romanticize the wealth that exists in the relationships of of communities of disadvantage in in the majority world. Um, I'm just back from Bangladesh, uh, where I was working with uh, garment workers and trade unionists around the question of just wages. And they have a wonderful sense of community, but but they don't want me to talk about the values that they have in their community. They want me to get them six more cent for every garment they produce. Uh, they want me to, to get them from 40 percent of their their livable wage up to 100 percent of their livable wage. So uh, there's like it's it's a paradoxical position I think that Philip and I are both presenting. We're saying our, our mission can't just be uh, bureaucratic and aiming at measurable results. In terms of uh, material well-being and at the same time we're saying don't romanticize the relationships it's a both-and affair which is a very Leslie Newbigin uh, position for the first to have ended up in yeah I think
2: that's brilliant and a challenge for all of us I think because ultimately romanticizing relational wealth in the absence of material wealth. It's a defense mechanism for people who are caught up in this global system to make themselves feel better about the role that they play and the wealth that they do have and what they're doing with the money they give away or the money they don't give away and then the money that they keep. So I think that's a great reminder for all of us to be very, very careful about the way that we... Mm. Talk about that. Okay, let's dive into the economics question in a little bit more detail. So Tierfund have produced a report recently called Abundant Community, which provides a sort of global theological perspective and underpinning on our economic and environmental sustainability work, which is really at the heart of how fund do development as well as our advocacy work as well. So Philip, can I come to you? Could you tell us a little bit, I suppose, firstly about the process of writing this report? I know it was a global co- consultation and um, that led to that and then outline some of the highlights for us.
3: Sure. Um, we've just published a report. Um, reports have their place, like uh, PhD theses that we write, and I'm grateful for this report that has come out. And I'll tell you, uh, I will refer to one quote from the report later to say why I, it excites me in my work here in the UK. But just a background and context, the tier Fund, of course, you know, our heart is to go where the need is great, greatest, um, to uh, serve God in context where there is real poverty. But also we realize there are structural and systemic issues that we have to deal with. And so what I wanted to say was um, there was a, effort to produce a theological underpinning for our corporate priority on economic and environmental sustainability. And we felt like instead of just finding somebody who can do the research and write it, we would begin with consultations that were happening around the world. And through a long process of listening to what uh, the Christians were saying in Latin America, what Christians in Africa were saying, this report was a, an effort to do that kind of listening. I mean, we'd like to think it was... Um, you know, decolonizing the way we do research. Uh, But that might be, uh, maybe it's far-fetched to call it decolonization already, but at least we made an attempt uh, to, to hear what Christians in other parts of the world are saying to us on the topic of the theology that underpins economic and environmental sustainability. And one surprising insight that came through that listening process was that in Africa, there was a real desire to recover the idea of abundance. And what they meant by that was that you know, of course there is the problem of prosperity gospel and there's a sort of materialistic, individualistic assumptions that are made in prosperity theology. But they said, actually, we want to we want to sort of promote this idea of an abundant community. And I think this connects to what Kevin has included in his book, this idea of generosity, of abundance, of not reducing everything to the sort of materialistic accumulation of things. Um, and so the report uh, says something that I just would like to refer to, which um, and the work that uh, we are doing in the Global North really is significant. So it says that um, so often we think the problem is poverty and we don't consider that the problem might be greed because we frame it around poverty. And so the report gives these examples of how tear has published books like Overcoming Poverty, Understanding Poverty, Jubilee, God's Answer to Poverty, but then ask the question, what if we publish books like Overcoming Greed, Understanding Greed, Jubilee, God's Answer to Greed. And one of the unfortunate consequences of framing the problem as poverty is that easily it easily transitions into a modernization thesis in which the solution for poorer nations is to follow the path of economic progress that has been pursued by wealthier nations. It, has, it establishes wealthier nations as the norm to which the rest of the world needs to catch up. And this is the problem because in planetary terms, environmentally, we cannot all live the way we live here. And while there is no immediate way in which we can overturn this, there is something that has to change, something that has to give if you're gonna live within the limits that God has put for us to live on this planet. And no matter how many brilliant ideas Bill Gates and other tech guys have uh, about solving problems using technology, my understanding is that the problem is more fundamental to, to our problem of who we are as fallen human beings. And uh, so this, this report is trying to reimagine how we do abundance without it being about material things.
2: Yeah. Do you think the church is ready to hear that message? Do you think the church is ready to hear what if this problem is not just poverty that's caused by some kind of system somewhere out there, but what if I'm caught up in it and what if the problem is greed? And I wonder, Philip, if you would um, maybe even give us a little overview of those three different models um, in the report of kind of creation care and how... The original model and one that is underpinned by greed is that kind of ego triangle and, and the other two and
3: what we kind of are proposing as a different solution. We always have to be careful when we talk about the church. I think, am I ready to hear this message? You know, to what extent my heart is uh, soft and broken before God to receive this challenge? My, my problem is buying books and I have to really resist it. But I I, I like things. I want to buy things. And now that I have, uh, when we were in the consultation on Saturday, Lauren, uh, the the one participant was saying, you know, I have a 13-year-old daughter who wants the newest phone. What do you do when you have a family and children want that? And as parents, you're trying to say, how do we teach our children generosity? How do we teach our children contentment? So it's a very challenging... um, We are powerless in the West to deal with the materialism, the spirit of the age that has um, twisted our desire. Instead of desiring fellowship with our neighbors, we sit on Amazon and want to buy things. It's a twisted way in which we express our desire. And so for me, the challenge, am I ready to hear this challenge of living more true in my discipleship? And then somehow, when I speak these words, they have credibility, they have integrity. Um, But I don't find it easy. I don't find being a follower of Jesus easy. It needs to be said, there are some sins that we are more quick to condemn and reject and have a, a better, process to sort of handle them at least in our discourse but greed is very problematic it's somehow inside of us and you need brothers and sisters to hold you accountable to help you become a more true disciple of Jesus when it comes to the the stronghold of greed in our lives.
1: Evan I can see you scribbling and nodding and uh, amening if you're charismatic maybe you would have had your hands in there at some point turn what Phil was sharing that. is that striking a chord with with what you feel and you see as well?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I was just thinking that we're recording this on um, the pagan holiday, Black Friday, that every Christian is uh, participating in and nobody is gonna preach against it this coming Sunday, even though it is clearly a planetary destroying, soul-sucking excuse for a festival. And uh, it will be very easy for every pastor listening, for every elder listening, to, to point out to people that this orgy of consumption is bad for us, bad for the earth, bad across the board. And we could resist it. We could have a we could have the buy nothing day for, for churches. This is the day we buy nothing at all. We do not participate. Uh, but instead we're we're carried along. Why? Because I'll be honest, my wife and I had a conversation about whether or not to buy that robot vacuum cleaner this morning. Because, uh, I mean, it's it's unbelievably cheap on Amazon. So, and I don't want to do any more vacuum cleaning. So we're all caught by that. Uh, I, I make a, a joke about that, but Philip is correct when he uses that very serious language about how it, it's twisting our souls and, and warping and perverting our desires. One of the things that I loved about the Abundant Communities report was how practical it is. Obviously, that's uh, an expression of how it's been built on this consultation with people across the globe. So the discussion of of Costa Rica... Uh, which reoccurs uh, throughout this report is particularly interesting, and I would encourage people to go and and download this report and and consider just that element of it, which is uh, Costa Rica is a middle income country with a GDP, if I remember correctly, about twelve thousand euros. It says in the in the report, and yet it consistently comes up highest in terms of well being. Um, they have a long lifespan. Um, they have this. They have arrived consciously at a sort of a sweet spot between having material wealth and maintaining com- community wealth. Um, it's interesting structurally that Costa Rica has uh, uh, basically disarmed itself. It doesn't spend any money particularly on, on military. It trains soldiers, but those soldiers are geared towards um, emergency response You know, in the case of landslides and so on. And they uh, have emphasized primary school education. Uh, so they have structural commitments in place that allow the individual to flourish. And that's not achieved by just uh, unrelenting capitalism geared towards GDP growth. Um, so that, those kinds of practical examples uh, kind of root down the the report for me in a way that's really hugely helpful. And the, the the shift from a hierarchical understanding of the environment past the kind of circular understanding that doesn't have a space for God into what uh, the tear fund animators have these beautiful sets of icons, uh, a kind of love heart. Um, that, that has uh, all the creatures of God together. W- what can I say except it's it's one of those arguments that lands so sweetly that you're utterly convinced by it the moment you read it. And so I can only encourage people, it, it comes in three formats, it's freely available online, so there's the long 76-page document and then there are shorter versions. But it's an absolutely brilliant tool for people who want to think about global justice.
1: Brilliant. And that uh, the link to those this report will be in the, in the notes of the podcast. And yes, there's a 70 something a 30 something and a three page something which is maybe the one to access first if you want to get the summary of it uh, kevin we've touched there on on greed and the local church and a lot of your writing is about how we keep ourselves holy or how we nurture our souls within the systems and structures that we're living in and all the stuff you've mentioned right robotic vacuum cleaners is, is right on the money um how do we keep ourselves spiritually healthy holy, whatever language you can use in the face of all this. And you've mentioned like a buy nothing day. And I know preaching of the word is key to that response. But are there some, I guess, what came out of your thinking and your writing on that?
0: I I think uh, echoing Philip's comments, uh, it's impossible to be holy on your own or to pursue holiness. Let's say, I don't know whether many of us ever achieve holiness, but we can only pursue it in the context of the Christian community. Um, I'm a Presbyterian. Um, a very old-fashioned Presbyterian, so for me, it's the preaching of the word, and it's also the sacrament. Uh, it's hugely, well, I'm, I'm, regardless of your theological position for, for Christians, that liturgical act of gathering around that table, uh, all invited by Jesus and all brothers and sisters because of his action, um, that uh, that itself is, again, to, you, to Rob Philip's language, that bears witness the authentic economics of the Christian church. And we ought to more and more locate our identity psychologically inside communion. And if you think about it, the bread and the wine is more than the bread and the wine, w- regardless of your theological uh, specificities. We all agree that uh, that this points towards an abundance. It's, it's just wheat and it's just grapes. And yet uh, when When we do it in remembrance of him, it's more than that. And that points towards, I think, the abundance of creation. And if that's the case, then we don't have to go through life with this scarcity mindset. And the scarcity mindset is bred into us. We're formed to believe there's not enough to go around. We're trained to believe that somebody's coming to take what's yours. And if you don't hold on to it tightly, you'll be left with nothing. And the Christian gospel says... It's not just that you don't have to hold on to it tightly. You don't even earn it in the first place. It's just given to you full stop. Uh, And if we have an economic uh, mindset that flows from the gospel, flows out of the communion table, then that's an economic mindset of abundance instead of scarcity. So without licensing a kind of economic idiocy where we say, Uh, supply and demand don't exist. Supply and demand do exist. The laws of economics that we've identified are real. We should engage with them, but we shouldn't be determined by them. And so I think the churches, communities of people should seek out practices that testify to the reality of disabundance in our life. And they're very simple things. Like I, I think community gardens are a great place to to, to go, a joint communal effort where we all put something in and we all get more than we put in because of that collective effort, because the, we we discover in that act that creation is abundant. I think buy nothing days are important. Um, I'm a very big fan of something called the Advent Conspiracy, which seeks to share presence instead of presents, and that seeks to cut down on consumption and the kind of mindless purchasing that is bred into us by mammon. Um, and I think that there are lots of other initiatives around the world um that we can get get behind as local communities and that uh, through bodies like Tearfund we can lobby on the national regional or uh, supranational you know the EU level uh, for for system change. So I think that it's a whole wide range of things but for me it begins with the devotional life of the Christian in their community. Um as Northern Irish people say they do life together. <laughs> um, you know this is something yeah, Northern Irish that evangelicals that always me. say to me. Um Ach, we're just doing life together. <laughs> um so uh, it, it's in that context that we can pursue holiness that it, uh, I, I like to talk about microaggressions against mammon. Uh, we just want to uh, remind the pri- powers and principalities that they have no hold of, over us and leave the big fight to Jesus. Um, uh, and w- what we'll find there is that the Holy Spirit will, uh, in in those in-breaking moments, crack open much bigger possibilities for us to pursue.
2: So powerful, Kevin. And I think what you need to do to be able to, to actually take those steps and take those microaggressions is recognise that there is an alternative kingdom at work, recognise that there is a mammon and all that it, they, it, the system embodies is actually a kingdom that is operating in the opposite spirit to the kingdom of heaven. And a lot of, it, I think, the church and our ourselves, we don't, we don't know that. Our eyes aren't open to the systemic reality. So that was why everyone should read your book.
1: <laughs> I was just going to... Amen, uh, all of that. Um, and I love that that phrase was highlighted multiple times when I when I read your book, Kevin. And I think it struck me that, you know, leave the big things to Jesus. I think sometimes we think the system is so mammoth. It is, you know, how can I change a, a, a culture or a system when we think about global poverty that's impacted by these systems play to? You. And you've mentioned, you know, a six cent wage rise for Bangladeshi garment workers, and yet that is uh, that defeats us before we've even started, uh, and yet the, this ownership of what all I can do, potentially, uh, if I don't have a platform, if I'm just locally here my my own home, my own street, what can I do? And that microaggression gives me real ownership and therefore power to say, uh, actually, I have authority within the kingdom, in a sense, to act in a certain way against another kingdom and that nurtures and nourishes and waters my soul even if it doesn't make any impact beyond that
0: uh what's Central to this is, is is um the issue of timekeeping again we're trained by the prevailing culture to think in terms of quarters um you know, <laughs> the, the third quarter profit a oh, warning um the church ought to be thinking in terms of centuries uh, the ragtag bunch of 500 people who were gathered together in Palestine, Uh, in the year after Jesus' ascension, did not have a plan to revolutionize the Roman Empire. They just had a a conviction that they were going to be faithful to their resurrected Lord. And that faithfulness accumulated over the course of centuries enough force to overturn the empire. Now, of course, the story is more complicated than that, and that overturning itself was a form of compromise, and we could talk about that forever. So we can't anticipate that we can overturn Uh, neoliberal carbon capitalism in three quarters um, in the kind of church calendar. But if we are faithful to the task that is set before us, which is to to follow the resurrected Lord, then uh, incrementally, slowly, with the patience of the Lord, momentum will build. And then uh, we have these apocalyptic moments, these revelatory moments, where we're able to push through very significant successes and we might end up with, you know, through the, through the work of organizations like Tier Fund, Bangladeshis might have a right to uh, join realistic trade unions, uh, which is a kind of system change that none of us can achieve on an individual basis. But if, if the constitutional right to form a trade union and to be a member of a trade union was actually enacted in practice in Bangladesh, then it would be transformative in their society. And it would be hard for us because we'd have to pay €4.50 euros instead of €3 euros for a T-shirt. I mean, that's how how unjust, how grossly unjust our economic system is. And the large scale changes that are required can only come about if we have, if we think about time in in the terms of the kingdom, which is slow.
2: Kevin, so practical and a good reminder for us to have a long view and also to look back and place and locate ourselves within history of the Christian church as well. Mm -hmm.
1: conversation has been so rich so good and we're loving it so much that we're going to pause and turn this into a two-part episode. So we hope you've enjoyed it uh, and then stay tuned for the second half of our conversation where we'll hear about Kevin's latest book. We'll discuss poverty here in the UK and we'll think about the Christian response of ordinary people like you and I uh, to what we see going on around us in the world. Bless you.